Is work working for your people and organization? In this podcast, Mercer thought leaders, industry experts, and business visionaries share big ideas and best practices to help you build great workplaces and a future where work works for everyone. Making Work Work is a podcast from Mercer Workforce Solutions. Welcome to Making Work Work. I'm Cynthia Cottrell. Today, I'm speaking with Ravid J.C. Thassen, Global Transformation Leader for Mercer, about a novel way of looking at work that has emerged. Ravid and I have spent the last week talking to almost 60 different client organizations throughout Australia to learn about how organizations are facing into this new way of work. One that takes a different approach at building capacity, unlocking potential, managing careers in an organization. In other words, what I love to say, things that make work lovable. We think it's a movement and we think the movement is called skills powered. I couldn't have a more capable guest to talk about the topic. Robin is a recognized global thought leader, futurist, and best-selling author on the future of work and workforce transformation. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thanks, Cynthia. It's lovely to be here with you. Robin, if you could just give us a, a bit of a background about yourself and, and how you've spent most of your career thinking about the world of work and, and what you see in front of us now. Yeah, absolutely, Cynthia. Happy to. So um, as you mentioned, I take care of Mercer's transformation business globally. I've been writing about the future of work since about 2007, and I don't think we were calling it the future of work back then. But over the course of the four books I've written, my last three have really started to unpack and unpick work from that traditional construct called a job to thinking about ever more agile ways of getting work done. My second book was called Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment, where my co-authors and I looked at how work was fleeing the organizational boundaries. We started to see the gig economy become a real feature in many developed markets and the new disciplines required to enable organizations to tap gig workers, which really, as we look back on it now, was kind of the start of this skills-based conversation. And then in our third book, my co-author John Boudreau and I wrote about how automation was coming into organizations like AI, like robotic process automation. And until you got to that elemental layer of skills and activities, you couldn't really get to the optimal combinations of humans and machines. And then with Work Without Jobs, our most recent book, what we wanted to do was lay out a, an operating system would allow organizations to be thoughtful about how they could make skills the currency for work, how they could capture the agility that was promised by this new currency, as well as drive more resilience in the face of challenges like the pandemic, the uncertainty we see with geopolitical crises like the war in Ukraine, and ensuring thus that talent was able to both redeploy more seamlessly, as well as develop much more seamlessly. And it's been fantastic to spend the last week with you and our colleagues in Australia because we're seeing so many Australian companies just be at the forefront of this movement towards being skills-based enterprises. You know, speaking of those organizations that shared their stories with us, I wanted to play a couple of snippets from 
the Skills Powered event that we held last week, where we asked HR directors and business leaders to tell us what they think Skills Powered means to them and why it might be valuable to the future of their companies. The, in the work that I do, we have very much portfolio careers. We have kind of like our own gig economy within the company. People wear multiple hats. They do different projects at the same time. So while we only have 800 people, those 800 people might be doing 4,000 different things. And so matching those things, those tasks and opportunities to people and skills and seeing how they can develop and grow uh, is really important to me and in my role. Nobody really knows how this works optimally yet, but there's lots of great um, ideas out there and lots of great case studies already starting to emerge about the huge benefits that it has and how it's really going to reimagine um, what work looks like for a lot of people globally. So exciting times. So for us, we are heavily reliant on high cost external contractors for work that comes up and growth opportunities. So we're interested in a skills-based market so that we can understand internally who we have that might have capacity, who can we engage um, and help develop their skills um, so that we can tap into them uh, at short notice uh, as well as invest in that internally uh, for IP. So that's why we're interested in the skills uh, marketplace. So as you can see, Robin, organisations are thinking differently about how the workforce will flow to the work and think differently, whether it be about gig workers, external contractors, full-time or part-time work. So Robin, what do you see as some of the key trends in this space as they're being put into practice at organizations you've helped advise over recent times? Yeah, Cynthia, it's fascinating to hear that those comments from our, our clients in Australia, because they really do mirror much of what we're hearing from, from organizations around the world. They're looking for much better signals of where the demand for work is going and what that means for the skills of the workforce. Given what we're seeing with digitalization and automation, you and I have talked a lot about ChatGPT and what that might mean for how skill premiums for various types of work are changing. So a better sense of that demand um, a better sense of what skills that workforces really have. You know, this thing called a job hides all manner of sins, I like to think. And often it obscures the true skills of the individual because, you know, the job doesn't really tap into all the unique capabilities that he or she might bring. And so as we move to a skills-based enterprise, we get much better, not just demand signals for where work is going, much, much better signals of the supply of talent the unique interests and passions that you, Cynthia, have, the skills you've acquired over the course of previous employers, previous experiences, previous certifications, expertise, etc. So that insight into the talent is the other dimension to this. And then I think the third dimension is the much more seamless matching between supply and demand, not just relying on this thing called a job, which often only enables very episodic movement as talent typically thinks of either moving upwards or laterally to now, to use the phrase that you used, having squiggly careers where people see opportunities three months, six months, a year from now, all driven by their ability to 
both express the skills they have as well as acquire new skills. So I think we're seeing companies start to recognize the game-changing potential of the skills-based enterprise and, and the need to engage in what is undoubtedly very challenging work of thinking beyond the job. We talk a lot on this podcast about making work lovable. And we talk about it in, that, in those terms because I think you've touched on such an important reason why this movement to skills-powered is gaining steam. You talked about really understanding the skills and how they connect people to the work that they love doing most. Um, so while the signals from understanding skills will help us understand supply and demand, it also feels like there's a great opportunity to help humans discover skills that they didn't know they had, but they've always known that they've really loved that task of driving Excel spreadsheets to the nth degree of insight or, or being able to deliver an emotional or an inspirational speech to their team, that those are all key skills that are important and are worthy of being surfaced to others so that they can be used elsewhere. You do a lot of work, Robin, in fact, with the World Economic Forum. And I wanted to touch on this point with you because as we talk about work becoming more equitable, more engaging, and again, more, uh, and in fact, just lovable, I think it's worth talking about your work with the World Economic Forum around creating equitable and fairer workplaces. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about what your research has shown and your partnership with the World Economic Forum has surfaced for us in terms of how that might broaden our views about fairness in the workplace and support the S and ESG agendas across organizations globally. Yeah, Cynthia, you know, we've been collaborating with the World Economic Forum for the last couple of years on a pretty important initiative for them called the Good Work Framework that was really designed to do what you just described, which is to bring more rigor, more thoughtfulness and structure to the S in ESG, much in the same way we've seen that rigor be brought to the environmental side of things and to corporate governance. And the work we've done to articulate five key priorities, five key elements of the framework are really intended to drive more equity, more inclusivity, and just generally to make work a much fairer and better proposition, to make it more lovable, if you will, as, as you just said. And I do think at the heart of this is the need for us to think about how the drive towards the skills-based enterprise might actually support this. Because what we're seeing with organizations who have insight into the skills is they're better able to reward talent based on the skills they bring they're better able to deploy talent to new opportunities. They're better able to upskill and reskill talent based on the skill gaps they observe between their evolving needs and the skills of that talent. They're able to provide better portability and mobility for talent, not just within their organization, but beyond their organizations as well. So, you know, ensuring that our responsibilities to the workforce are not just when they're our employees but beyond that as well. And, and I think this framework, the Good Work Framework and the underlying Good Work Alliance is a really important part of taking the skills-based narrative beyond just 
a good operating system for companies today to drive agility, flexibility, and resilience, but to make work more lovable, to make it more equitable and inclusive for everyone. You know, Robin, you mentioned in talking about your work with the World Economic Forum and those benefits that you talked about just in your discussion points just now are absolutely attractive to any organization thinking through the great talent challenges that we're going through right now around engagement, attracting and retaining great talent, and also those important uh, tangible business outcomes of being able to still get to market, you know, in a timely manner with product or serving customers. Can you give us an example of an organization that you've worked with who has made this investment in moving to a skills-powered model and has started to see the benefits of that investment? Absolutely, Cynthia. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is Unilever, well-documented as one of the, uh, the poster children, if you will, for the future of work. We've had the privilege of working with them for quite a few years, and their move towards the skills-based enterprise was part of this broader objective of creating much greater agility within the organization. And the interesting thing was that they introduced their internal marketplace that they were using to power their skills-based enterprise at the start of the pandemic. And it helped shape a very differentiated response to the pandemic. It allowed them to mobilize their talent. It allowed them to better understand where the demand for that from their customers might be going as this pandemic sort of played out. It also allowed them to mobilize their workforce and redeploy talent much more quickly, um, saving many countless jobs where they, because they didn't have to go through the usual response that we see from companies when their demand profiles change, where they have a reduction in force in one part of the business, and then they go out and hire talent in another part of the business. So I think that was one really good example of an organization that during the pandemic demonstrated the power of the skills-based enterprise. The other is a very large insurance company that we've worked with, where we've introduced the skills-based enterprise for all their digital talent, their data scientists, their UI, UX designers, et cetera. And the move from a traditional functional structure to an environment where skills were the currency for work resulted in a 600% gain in the productivity of their data scientists. Um, and the extension of what started off as a fairly narrow experiment to cover all of their digital talent around the world, enabling much better talent deployment, much better work experiences, and the ability for talent to pursue their passions and keep upskilling and reskilling themselves as they got better signals of where the demand for work was going. That's amazing, 600%. I can't imagine any leader or executive not wanting to take up that business case and implement it tomorrow. <laughs> and on that note, for all of our listeners who are thinking about joining in this movement or are in the process already of transitioning to a skills-powered organization, Robin, what would you advise them as they consider the potential pain points or trigger points that they are solving for? What would be, you know, your top two or three tips for organizations 
considering or just starting this journey? Yeah, you know, Cynthia, it's such a great question. The change we're talking about is a is a really significant one, right? As you and I have talked about, we've we have 140 years of learned behavior and leadership muscle and organizational capability tied to this thing called a job. Now, despite the title of the book, Work Without Jobs, we're not saying that jobs are passe or will be going away anytime soon. But what we are saying is that organizations need to find a way to move beyond jobs if they're going to build the agility to respond. So it's really important that as you move in this direction, you find some triggers which are going to give you the permission to start to experiment with this thing called skill, the skills-based enterprise. Where are there some pain points that a traditional response may not be sufficient? How can we experiment with some of these ideas in discrete areas that don't threaten the operational integrity of the business? How do we engage leaders in understanding this journey and giving them the catbird seat, if you will, for looking at how these changes are playing out in a safe space? Equally, you know, many tend to lead with the technology. And as you and I know, the technology is the easy piece, you know, the marketplaces, the talent insight platforms, and There are so many great platforms out there. The harder work is the work of rewiring the enterprise and rewiring leaders and managers. And I think that's where starting discreetly, walking before you run, but building that architecture around the technology, I think is a really important part of the equation. So looking beyond the tech to actually understand what's the behavioral and culture change that needs to happen in order to enable this, this new way of working and capture some of the gains that we just talked about. I think that's great advice, Robin. And I think just, I wanted to just press on that uh, piece around the tech. You know, you and I were discussing, in fact, with an organization recently about, I can't describe it any better than to say FOMO with regards, or fear of missing out with regards to the technology. And I think you were right. And that organization sometimes equate this movement of skills powered to the technology. And I think one of the points that I thought was very interesting in our discussions this week with clients is that the technology will only continue to accelerate over time. If we you mentioned chat GPT or generative AI at the start of this discussion, as those technologies, as AI continues to get better, to become more consumable everywhere. I think it kind of, for me, resonates that this movement is not about the technology. The technology will get better. It can be replaceable. It could potentially continue to evolve in such a way that where you start from with tech may change by the time you end your journey. So it feels like to me, The movement really is about, as you say, that cultural shift, that rewiring of leaders, of team members, of employees, of humans to really take the reins of this journey and own it and make the most of this moment. The technology is just the enabler and it will likely continue to evolve. Yeah, Cynthia, that's absolutely right. You know, as my co-author John Goudreau and I've written in in our last two books, and we've demonstrated the organizations who lead with the work 
consistently outperform those who lead with the tech. And that's not just true of this space where we're talking about these marketplaces, but it's true of every domain of the enterprise, that the companies who lead with the work, understanding how it's going to, in nuanced fashion, affect the work and the role of the technology, get to much higher order outcomes. And there's something that's really important in what you just said, which is, you know, technology is perpetually rendering itself obsolete. We know that, you know, you just have to look at our iPhones, right? My goodness, if you are my kids, you have to get a new iPhone every every year. Your operating system is getting upgraded in the background maybe every two or three months. Your apps are getting updated every every week or so. And I think that's the mindset we need to have is that, yes, technology is going to be perpetually rendering itself obsolete. How do we build a mindset and a culture of perpetual reinvention so we're continuously questioning and challenging the work operating model? And I think the way we do that is to get to that foundational level and elemental level, if you will, of skills and capabilities as the currency for work. Robin, I think you've summed this up very well for all of us and your time here in Australia as well. I want to thank you for joining us today. Your experience and insights will surely help many of our listeners consider their next steps towards becoming a skills-powered organization. Oh, it's my pleasure, Cynthia. It's just, it's been lovely to be here with you. I'm Cynthia Cottrell. Thanks for listening to Making Work Work from Mercer Workforce Solutions. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and thank you for listening. Please subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. And if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our website at mercer.com.au.